Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia Business School who maintains a Substack blog one of your fellow Tully Show listeners tipped me off to called Experimental History. Hello and welcome, Adam Mastroianni. And did I come anywhere close to saying your last name correctly? Uh, you're close. You're like you're like in the neighborhood. Okay. Uh, Mastroianni. Mastroianni is how I say it. But if you go to Italy, you would they wouldn't know who that is. Uh, but I say Mastroianni. You just forget that O ever existed. Uh, yeah, there's so many vowels in there. It feels like one of them has to be the casualty. Yeah, that was that was my inclination in trying to suss out how I was going to ad address you. But uh, in, in deference to the way it's spelled, I, I try to get them all in there. Um, I appreciate it. Out of, out of deference to, to the to the old country, I appreciate it. You were recently in India. Yeah. Under what circumstances uh, were you there and did you enjoy yourself? Uh, I had a great time. Uh, I just got engaged. Mm -hmm. um, my fiance's family is from India, so I went uh, to see her family. I celebrated her grandfather's 90th birthday there with him. Um, so it was awesome. Uh, I ate a lot of good food and had zero diarrhea. So a really successful trip. That was my next question. So, so thanks. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, everybody wants to know. Um, so explain to everybody what you do. I, you know, the, the, the research stuff is what it is. Our interest in speaking to you and thank you to a listener at, uh, at King in Canada who brought you to my attention is, is this blog that you maintain? What, what are you trying to accomplish? Do you do this mainly for fun or is this like sowing the seeds of a potential I'm coming to drink your milkshake, Malcolm Gladwell? What are you trying to, to do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my ultimate goal is, is to kind of hog tie Malcolm Gladwell and shave those beautiful locks. Uh, and, and then I, I will uh, usurp him as the world's foremost uh, sort of charming public intellectual. Yeah, um, he's had a good it's really It's really that, uh, so I, I did my PhD in social psychology. I'm a postdoc now. And, and I'm looking around at the world of science and I'm going like, man, <laughs> writing scientific articles like kind of sucks. It's just like, it's silly, it's dumb. Uh, and I feel so good when I'm writing about the science that I care about and the research that I do in the mode for this blog. Um, and so that's kind of what I want to do. I haven't fully rolled that out with uh, all the people who might be disappointed if, I, if I'm not a professor. Um, but I, I believe the future of science is in the wilds of the Internet. Um, and so I'm trying to go out there and, and do some of my science. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Hopefully this helps in some minuscule way for you to build your case yeah. to the people in the photos behind you and uh, over your shoulder right now that this is a <laughs> this is a viable career path and it's your life, goddammit. Yeah. Yeah. All, all these ancestors who came over, uh, <laughs> sacrificed their whole lives so I could write silly little words on a blog. Uh, it's truly the American dream. Hey, tell me about it. I know I'm descended from eons of generations of Irish eel fishermen, and this is this is what it got them. <laughs> I'm sitting in my basement <laughs> talking to people on Zoom. If, uh, if only they could know how many eel you haven't caught with your life. They'd be so disappointed. I'm still working, uh, I'm still working on eel one, Adam. <laughs> so from your bio on your blog, <clears throat> I study how people perceive and misperceive their social worlds from the person sitting across the table to the whole country buzzing around them. Adam, to try to pin that down to something specific so everyone knows who you are and what the hell it is you actually do. Give me one example. Tell me one big way that you would guess many, most, perhaps all people who will listen to this are misinterpreting, say, the whole country buzzing around them. So uh, so I published a paper recently about how people think that public opinion has changed over time. Um, and uh, so we have all these different attitudes, everything from gun control to abortion, climate change, uh, race, gender. And we just showed people these polling questions that have been asked for decades. 
And we just asked people, what do you think, how do you think Americans answered this question in like 1976 or whenever it had first been asked? How do you think they answered it last year when it was asked most recently? And people are really bad at this. Uh, and specifically, they tend to overestimate how much things have changed. So for instance, one of the questions is, would you vote for a black person for president if your party nominated them and they were qualified for the job? Uh, that was first asked in like 1978. And people are like, uh, people today think that only about 25% of Americans said that they would do that in the late 70s. In fact, it was 75%, uh, which goes up to like 95% today. And people think it only goes up to like 75% today. Now, of course, th there could be some difference between what people say that they would do and what they would actually do. But I think the mistake that people are making is thinking that even in the late 70s, it was totally cool to say you would never vote for a black person for president. And that's not what it was like. I wasn't there, but that's at least what the data suggests. Well, it seems like there's kind of two perceptions that are potential misperceptions that are sort of at odds with one another. Like, for example, we are enamored of this myth that obviously has had a bit of cold water thrown on it very recently that we're getting more and more progressive. You would know more yeah. about this than I do. There is some objective evidence that that was the case. It was, you know, homosexuality was considered a mental illness into the 70s by the people who were best equipped to, to um, make that kind of declaration. Uh, interracial marriage was illegal until not that long. So, yeah. so there has to be some objective progress. You, yes. you, you said 1978. Obviously, the stuff I just mentioned, yep. the big changes would have come before that. On the other hand... There's this persistent sense, which as far as I can tell has existed since the printed word has existed, so therefore has existed since humans have been able to um, communicate with one another, which is everything was fine until about 15 years ago, <laughs> and hold on to your hats because we're about to unleash you know, hell on earth. So yeah. I never really thought of this before. How do we, how do we both hold the idea? Yeah. That we're, well, I guess yeah. the idea is that progressivism is somehow intertwined with uh, a loosening of of morals that's going to lead to to some non-specified but catastrophic decline, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny that that is the other big thing that I work on is people's perception that morality is declining, yeah. uh, and you can see that people really do think this. They think it's happening in, the, in recent years. They think it's been happening their whole lives. When we survey them, people all over the world believe this. So we have surveys from fifty nine different countries. Uh, where a majority of people are like, yes, people are not as good, as kind as they used to be. Um, and this is, this is my dissertation. So I really went into like, can we find any evidence that this is the case? Now, some things, of course, if you really care about them, it's obvious. Like if you really care about people having premarital sex, yes, people are worse now than they used to be. But if, if what you care about is the thing that we can all agree are ways that people could be good or bad, like treating each other with respect, um, you know, not killing each other. If you actually look at those things over time, we have no evidence that it's changed since we started measuring things, uh, you know, about 50 years ago. Um, and in fact, some things get better. I mean, when you look at like violence, uh, that's declined over the world. It goes up and down, but generally it goes down. Um, and, uh, and, and so part of my work has been, why do people think that this is happening if it's not really happening? What do you got so far on that? Uh, I think there are two things that work together to to produce this illusion. One is that people primarily, uh, when you look out at the world, you see evidence that people are bad. If you read the news, uh, which is something we could talk about later, we I, will, yeah. thing I don't think you should do. Yeah. Uh, if you read the news, it's mainly stories about people doing bad things to one another. So there's this effect that we always see a lot of bad stuff happening in the world. And then a second effect, and this comes from some research on memory in psychology, the negativity of bad things tends to fade faster in our memory than the positivity of good things. So one way to think about this is like, if you got pantsed at prom, 20 years later, that memory might seem funny to you. Um, whereas if you, you know, went on a nice vacation 20 years ago, it still feels fine. Um, the, the, the bad memories tend to not be as bad, not every memory, but on average, and the good memories tend to stay okay. So both things fade, but the bad things fade faster. And if you put those things together, that if every day things seem really bad, when you look at the morality of the world, over time, you will actually come to think that it didn't used to be that way, that all the bad things that happened in the past, all the murders and the terrorist attacks um, uh, and all the terrible things people did to each other, um, just like don't seem all that bad compared to the ones that are happening today, um, even though they've always been just as bad. Um, and an interesting thing about that, that account is it predicts a few things. One is we won't see people thinking that morality has declined before they were born. 
And this actually turns out to be the case. So if you survey people, you're like, okay, how kind are people today? What about 10 years ago, 20 years ago? And then you ask them, how about the year in which you were born? And then how about 20 years before that and 40 years before that? People will tell you it got better. It goes, it gets better the further you go into the past. So it gets worse and worse and worse. You get closer today, but it stops at the year that I'm born. 20 years before that, people were just as good. 40 years before that, people were just as good. There's something magical about my arrival on earth that starts to make people get worse over time. Uh, another prediction that will come out of the, this explanation is that if there is a domain where you actually, things seem really good all the time, you'll mistakenly think that things got better. So when we ask people about your family and your friends, what are they like today? And what were they like 15 years ago? People on average say they're better today than they were 15 years ago. So we have a world full of people going, my little corner of the world has only gotten better, but all other corners of the world have gotten worse. But everybody's saying that. Uh, and so somebody's got to be wrong. Right. Or, or things are truly, as a wise beetle once said, getting better all the time. Yeah, uh, which which if we're, if we're, if if we're all walking towards working towards that goal, and if there's all sorts of economic incentives built into our system for people to make that, so maybe just maybe that's what's actually maybe all these people who are working towards progress and very very few of us actively looking to destroy it, maybe collectively we're having a mild moderate amount of success. Yeah, uh, and it's funny just how much it doesn't feel like that's the case, uh, and yet I think in many ways is. Uh, I mean, I think there's still a lot of problems left. Um, but I think we have to be willing to say like, we succeeded on some things. Um, yeah. And uh, and like the world of 50 years ago is not actually a world that I, that I or I think most other people would, would actually like to go back to. No, and the food was terrible. Um, there are, uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's sort of two things that I feel like, that I consider them related, but two separate issues um, that we could be talking about when we talk about these sorts of things. One is like objective, uh, let's say, you know, uh, crime or, or, or criminal violence and the likelihood yep. that you're going to be, you know, stabbed to death in your home or in, let's, let's forget how much less of that there is than there probably was a long time ago. And that is something I think most of us are acquainted with this phenomenon that if there's one murder every single day in New York city, then the New York post is going to have, you know, if it bleeds, it yeah. leads, it's going to have a steady supply of that it, nobody's reporting on the 11 million people who successfully did not get murdered again yesterday. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Rutger Bregman, I think his name is. I had him on the show and he talked about how we keep moving the, um, he's one of these like, uh, he's also gunning for the Gladwell thing. And he, he's a very, uh -huh. he's a very optimistic sort of person. He says, we keep moving the goalposts. So we talk about how bad, for example, bullying is in grammar school. We're at this point, largely talking about microaggressions. Yeah, not yeah. kids who are getting put in the hospital by the kid who keeps breaking everyone's arm. So yes, there may be just as much bullying as there used to be. But it, I mean, come on. <laughs> these kids, mm -hmm. these kids got to toughen up some point any, anyway. <laughs> but then there's the flip side of it, which is the um, the the civility part of it. And I don't know why. Maybe you can tell me why that argument. I'm far from a conservative, and I don't, I don't think I think America's plenty great right now. We don't need to make it great again. But sure. I do sense the world that I grew up in, suburban New Jersey, that there was an amount of order and, oh, um, you accidentally, waitress, gave me $2 too much in change. Of course I'm going to go back inside and give her that. That has eroded. And you're saying that's my imagination. I'm a pretty happy, I, I love people. I think people, I, I consistently teach my children, people are by and large good. It's just a small amount of assholes that just ruin so much of it for the rest of us. Why do I feel like mm. civility has eroded since, you know, the world that I grew up in the 1980s and the world that I heard described of the 50s and 60s? Yeah. Um, I think part of it is is that the bad things that people did to you in the past don't feel as bad to you today as the bad things that they did to you yesterday. Right. Um, so if someone's really rude to you and it really sticks with you for a day and, and maybe even, you know, from time to time for the next year, you think about that, that like that one asshole on the bus or, or something. And uh, but eventually that fades. Uh, so much happens to us all the time um, that most things just kind of fall away. Um and so if more of the bad stuff has fallen away from the past, you can get this illusion where you think there was never that bad stuff. Um, I think that's one reason. And I think that's why to really get a good purchase on the question, you have to look at our best source of data, which is these surveys that we have going back all these decades where we ask people like, okay, in the past 30 days, did you uh, uh, like give up your seat to somebody on the bus? Um, and we see that like that doesn't change over time. Like, okay, did you like 
give money to someone who needed it. That doesn't change over time. Did people treat you with respect all day yesterday? 90% of people have, have said yes to that question and they have for the past 15 years. Um, that isn't to say like, it does feel like something has changed and I think things do change. And like some things can get worse even as some things get better or stay the same. So like, yeah, it's obvious if you look at our politics, there are things, right? Like there are seals that have been broken that weren't broken before. Um, that also doesn't necessarily mean that like those seals are broken all the way down uh, in society, or it doesn't mean that like we were fully paying attention to them before. So none of this is the reason why I actually brought you here today, <laughs> which is- The reason we're gathered here today. Which is largely to uh, to talk about uh, pop music and and pop culture. Um, you put a blog post up entitled, I think I have this right, Pop Culture Has Become an Oligopoly. Now, That's right. Adam, of course I know what an oligopoly is, but for anybody <laughs> right. who's less educated Yeah, for than, the people listening yeah. at home. Yeah. <laughs> right. What is an oligopoly? Uh, so everybody knows Monopoly, right? It's the game that uh, turned your friends into enemies. Um, an oligopoly is just like a monopoly, but with a few more people. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, if you play Monopoly, this is normally where the game ends. So like, there, are, it's clear that a few people have gotten ahead, and everybody else is, you know, hanging on to their one, uh, their one house uh, on like one of the blue properties. Yeah, you got your Baltic um, Ave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're just holding on by a thread and hoping you, you don't land on Park Place. Uh, that's the state that we're in. Uh, a Monopoly with a few people. What drew you to this? Is this something that you have? A personal interest in that you therefore like went and confirmed your suspicion that we are in um, a winners take all situation pretty much across the board in pop culture yeah um so one thing i'm really interested in it is people's perception of change over time versus what's actually happened so that's a that's a theme in the social uh the, the public opinion work it's a theme in, in my work on moral decline and so here too whenever people say something like ah it's not like it used to be I wonder like, well, but is it? We right. know human memory is fallible. There's all these biases. And so like, let's get the best data that we can to try to answer the question. So I really had the sense, like everybody else, that like, man, like Lightyear is coming out where you have like uh, Top Gun Maverick. Like it just kind of feels like it didn't used to be this way. So is that an illusion or is that true? Um, and I, I went searching and it turns out this one, people are right. Yeah, I'll just read a couple of quotes from this post of yours in every corner of pop culture, movies, TV, music, books, and video games. Some of this, movies did not surprise me, uh, and, and this phenomenon, I think, plays out a little bit more forcefully in some of these media than, yeah. than in others, but you make a compelling case really across the board that a smaller and smaller cartel of superstars, well done, is claiming a larger and larger share of the market, for example, you mentioned movies. And uh, until the year 2000, 25% of top grossing movies were sequels, prequels, spinoffs. Since 2010, it's been over 50%. In recent years, it's been close to 100%. No one need look further than the marquee at their local movie theater, assuming they still have one, to... <laughs> confirm that this is that this is the case we are led to believe that well if you ran a movie studio you would do the same thing you're placing 200 million dollar bets for films that need to appeal to four quadrants men women little girls little boys the world over so yeah would you not have someone in tights throwing magic punches you know w through the air through space with their and also uh there can be no uh, political or social setting that in any way resembles anyone's actual reality because that's bound to offend at least three of the markets that we need in order to make this movie profitable. The movie thing, yes, we noticed this. My stock response to that has been, well, yes, but I'm the guy, I'm a huge 80s guy. Where are the Beverly Hills Cops? Where's the Beetlejuices? Where's the Mr. Mom? Who is today's Michael Keaton? Do we even have one, you know? And it's so tempting to say, well, all of that stuff is now limited run TV stuff. And there's actually more of it than mm -hmm. there ever was. It's just on television. But you make a compelling case that TV has also oligopolized. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I think what you said, that, that there is more of everything, it, I mean, it's totally true, right? It's just obvious that uh, if you want to be entertained, you have so many more options today than you did 40 years ago. 
Um, and for anybody who like really cares about the kind of content that they consume, I mean, they're living in a golden age, right? There is so much good TV. Um, but for most people, they don't actually care that much. And so they're going to watch the thing that's most popular, takes the least effort to find. Uh, and so when you look at the, the most popular TV shows, um, they're mainly things like Dancing with the Stars and American Idol, uh, various CSIs and NCISs. Um, I saw a, a good chart a while back. This, this is a little out, out of date now, but it was comparing uh, the amount that certain TV shows are discussed online or in the media with the actual most popular TV shows. And the ones that are most discussed at the time, this is a while back, but it was like, it's Breaking Bad, it's Game of Thrones. Uh, and the most watched TV shows are like NCIS, which I've never seen an episode of it. Uh, and most people I know will never admit to watching an episode. This is like what people, to my, to my mind, like they watch this when they're in hospital beds like, and they can't change the channel. Uh, so if you're a person who cares about TV, you're not watching those shows. But most people don't care that much. And so you can see it in television shows. If you look at... Um, two things. If you look at spinoffs of the same show or broadcasts of the same show, so like American Idol on Monday and American Idol on Wednesday, and you just graph out like, okay, what percent of the top 30 are either broadcasts of the same show or spinoffs of the same show? And it just steadily climbs uh, from the 50s until now. Um, so this one, unlike movies that had a sudden change at around 2000, this has been a more gradual change uh, over the past 70 years. And music in some ways, it's the most stunning thing to me because well, well like i i, I kind of want to talk about the what before we talk about the why but mm. you could make a case and maybe you would agree with this case that it's just kind of insane that it took movie studios this long to realize <laughs> why yeah. are you constantly trying to find new properties if the dummies liked it once the dummies will like it nine more times yeah uh and honestly I think there's a wisdom to it. And I think it's not all bad. When I was a kid and loved Star Wars, I would have killed for another Star Wars movie. Uh, oh, the yeah. one time I remember as a kid that we went, I mean, I grew, I'm, I'm home right now in, in uh, a town of 1400. Like our, our local movie theater, uh, the next town over, it doesn't sell out. The one time it did was when they re-released the original trilogy. This is like in the late 90s. Yes. Uh, there was like the special editions came out. Yep, we went to see, first, yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, there was all this revisionist history happening. Uh, we went to see Empire Strikes Back and we couldn't get a ticket um, because people were so hungry to spend more time in that universe. And it's wild that, like like you said, like studios didn't realize this. People love Star Wars. Just feed them more Star Wars. We, we want to see these characters more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't need to make uh, action movies with Lucy Liu and Antonio Banderas. Just give us give us <laughs> more huts, more huts, please. Yeah. And, but it, so yeah, more huts. <laughs> I, I I under like once you have this established property, it is. I mean, Star Wars is the perfect example. It's not just characters that you want to spend time with. It's a world that you want to live in. It's a world that you want to escape to. Music doesn't really work that. Well, it does. Once I guess people want to live in Red Hot Chili Pop Peppers world and the Chili Peppers can keep <laughs> on making the Chili Peppers song. It seems yeah. to me, I don't know if you got into this exactly. I guess you did. The durability of pop stars nowadays is uh, extreme and to me baffling. Not to say that there haven't always been people who, you know, once Elton John got his foot in the door, Elton John could make hit music for 20 years. But uh, I worked in pop music briefly and there was this, it was a truism that a pop star was like 18 months. Maybe there's the mm -hmm. one hit wonder. And then if that is compelling enough or if they have enough material, then maybe there's two, three singles off of that one album. That person is now huge. They're as big as it gets. They're going to get some VMAs. The next album cycle, they'll have done a lot of drugs. The people they worked with in the first one will have taken more money to work with someone else. The follow-up single will be a half-assed, half-baked version of the thing they did the last time. That'll get a little heat, and we'll never hear from that person ever again until they're yeah. until they're bloated and out of rehab and on VH1 in a few years. The um, the Avril Lavines of the world. Avril Lavigne would not have been a perennial hit maker. Would not have had a twenty-year career had she come up in the eighties. The fact that at a certain point in the commercial hard rock space, people started doing imitations of imitations of Alice in Chains and then just never stopped. Just never ever. It just continues to go to this day as this durable format. What, what do you find? That to me doesn't seem debatable, but you're saying the numbers actually do bear out that we have less pop stars, less music stars who are far more successful for far longer than they ever used to be. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and, it, and it's happened gradually over time. So if you look at the number of artists represented on the Billboard Top 100 in a year, it used to be somewhere like 300, 400, and it's declined decade by decade uh, uh, until now it's it's down more like, uh, on like 200 to 300. Um, and with this data and with all the data, we have to take it with a grain of salt because things like how does the billboard like chart things change some over time? Um, and so it's really the fact that this is a big change that makes it trustworthy rather than like uh, trusting small changes. But I mean, something that's happening now that never happened before, uh, I saw an advertisement for a holographic ABBA concert yes. um, yeah. mm -hmm. that like, yeah, like, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I'm 31. I haven't been around all that long, but I think when I was a kid, that would have been really weird, um, or especially I think to someone in uh, in like the '60s, that like we're gonna get a band from the 1920s uh, that like you guys are still gonna like, and everybody's gonna be really excited that like we can somehow bring them back from the dead and have them play a concert again. Uh, I mean, I talked to uh, my academic advisor who was like, when I was growing up, I hated my parents' music. Like, I wasn't gonna listen to Perry Como. Like, are you crazy? Um, oh, Adam, if I can interrupt you, I made this point on this show yeah. last week that uh, I, I do a lot of podcasts about 1980s music. There was the the internet groundswell demand for Weezer to cover Toto's Africa. And I said, that's a band whose yeah. commercial heyday was 30 years ago uh, covering a song, which, by the way, my children adore the original, which is very odd, which is 40 years old. <laughs> had that happened when I was a child, we would have had Chuck Berry or Chubby Checker covering Bing Crosby by popular demand to rapturous delight and total satisfaction of the pop audience of eight-year-olds. It's bananas, and it's a totally under-remarked-upon phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and so what's going on there? Um, and uh, and I think part of it is uh, nostalgia that, like, uh, you know, uh, things feel, like, really complicated now, but they felt good in the past. Um and so we want to get back to the kind of music that was playing when um, uh, when when times were good. The population has aged as well, and so now uh, older people have more of the market share oh. uh, than they used to. Um, and so there's there's more money to be made in catering to people whose music taste kind of calcified thirty years ago. Um, and I think this the same reason that we want Weezer to cover Toto, we want a Wonder Years remake. Uh, so I think that's part of the reason. I think part of the reason too is maybe people actually always wanted this. And much like realizing people wanted more Star Wars, finally companies realize that like people really like this music uh, and and they want more of it. Um, no, 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 no. But, but, that, but, but yeah. they, they don't because I, I, I grew up, I'm, I'm, you know, I was born in 1977. I'm going to be 45. My mom was wanted to remain, you know, cool and relevant. And, and so we would kind of toggle back and forth between the top 40 station playing Madonna and Cousin Brucey and the oldie station. And sure, I didn't hate all of the Beach Boys songs, but Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons was it was it was old. It felt old. It was never going mm. to be. My, I was never going to be taking a girl out. And I was never going to have my first kiss on a hillside somewhere to to Sherry Baby by Frankie Valley. That's a that was a that's a, a, a bizarre thing to suggest that anyone would want to engage would have wanted to engage with that. No, we always wanted more Star Star Wars. We never wanted more music from mm. the 1940s or really anything pre rock and roll. That that was sort of the cultural line in the sand. So the, the you lay out a very compelling, I think, a, an indisputable case that this is the what is going on. The why is a lot more is a lot more hazy. I have a, a theory for this. Um, it's a very grandiose theory. It's a very pessimistic theory. It's very much ties into the whole everything was fine and now everything's going to shit. Um, but yeah. I, but I, I can't find fault in it. To me, let's take music as that's what I can speak most authoritatively about. The culture shed its skin every eight, 12 years or whatever. Rock and roll, the Beatles made Frank Sinatra feel passe. And then psychedelic rock made I Want to Hold Your Hand feel passe. And then electronic music made rock and roll feel passe. And then Nirvana made Paula Abdul feel passe. And then there kind of hasn't been another one. And at this point, there's a lot of incredibly uh, talented people nowadays. And, and music can be made so much more cynically. If you don't just want to sit there and wait for the gods to bless you, 
you could sit there and play around with Pro Tools and flip it and reverse it, and you can not you could have no talent whatsoever, and you could still make something quote unquote original. There's no lack of talented people spending lots of time with un technology that would have been unfathomable unfathomable 20 years ago to like spelunk in every available direction and yet all we seem to be getting is rehashed bits of this combined with rehashed bits of that is it possible at a certain point a culture is just spent and it is just going to be in the same way that we had an american uh century of culture and it's very tempting to tie the thrust of our culture to the thrust of the success of our political experiment that we just some a a a, a change can only come with a, a massive paradigm change paradigm change that at this point can only come frankly from outside of english speaking borders um, this is something that uh, I've written a little bit about, uh, the scientific version of this, mm -hmm. um, that, that people are, are kind of like, look, the reason why we haven't had a lot of scientific progress in, uh, you know, kind of since 1971 is like, we got all the easy stuff. Like we mined the mines, uh, and they're kind of empty and like, maybe there's something left, but you, you got to spend most of your life digging. Um, and I don't think that's the case in part, because I, I think this is a, a problem that is at the top of the charts. It's not actually a problem. I mean, you know more about music than me. But I think actually there's tons of good stuff to consume, just like there's there's good TV. Uh, I think there's like interesting music. It's just not the popular music. And so I think this has more to do with, well, who's promoting the music that gets to the top? Like, how is that music getting to people? Who's controlling the channels and distribution? How is all of that distorting the kinds of music that get made in the popular channels? Uh, and how has that changed over time? Um, well, can I dispute that though? Because I think yeah. the the who 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 has a say in what we are exposed to or whatever, there was far more control over what people were exposed to in the fifties, sixties. I mean, until very very recently. How can it be that as we have uh, greater access to spread ideas, culture on a peer to peer basis? that all of a sudden the powers that be finally, because the powers that be yeah. didn't, nobody signed the Beatles because who the hell's going to want this? I've got Frank Sinatra and 18 guys who look and sound like Frank Sinatra. So why, when those bands did use to squeeze through the cracks and then blow everything up and create a new paradigm, why would that have stopped now? That doesn't add up. Yeah, I think it's actually not because uh, what produces an oligopoly is um, one person controlling, um, or not necessarily one person controlling the kinds of consumption decisions that everybody else makes. It turns out that like you can get this even when the control gets really decentralized. So if you essentially like pave everything, now nothing is safe from uh, from the stuff that gets popular, even though no one is pulling the lever and saying, okay, we're gonna feed them this, then the most popular stuff actually overwhelms all the stuff that used to be protected uh, by, by markets being a little bit harder to penetrate. So it could have been in the, that in the past when one person was making a lot of creative decisions, if they actually want to promote someone who's a little bit riskier, people are actually going to listen to it because they got you got to listen to whatever you know big disc jockey is going to play. Oh, interesting. But now when it's all down to uh, to well, it, I'm going to watch whatever is viral. Well, then you're going to watch whatever is popular. Uh, and so no one person is making the decision for you anymore, but many people are making are now making the decision for you. And it turns out that those decisions can actually be more homogenized than the kind of decisions that one person would make. That's compelling. That's, that's, yeah. That, well, because I, I just so happened to have been sitting in traffic, not listening to my kids talk to me, um, reading the Wikipedia entry on Guns N' Roses' appetite for destruction. And supposedly that had been out for a year and was doing nothing, which is like so unfathomable that people couldn't just listen to that with their ears and get it. And just as the label is about to cut bait and move on from promoting it, somebody miraculously convinces MTV to play the Welcome to the Jungle music video once per night four nights in a row so you're right there actually was yeah. this gatekeeper because mtv was still the only game in town and sure enough i mean nirvana i can literally recall seeing it at two o'clock in the morning and going to school and one other guy was up so that's exactly yeah. it. there was only one mtv so if you did manage to crack that you had a lot of eyeballs on you this kind of reminds me of the um I, I, ultimately, I guess people do tend to adopt a hive mind mentality or or maybe just have similar tastes. Maybe it's not, you don't have to be cynical about it. Like I remember hearing um, at the end of D DVD rentals, those 
was it Redbox or something? Those kiosk things started popping up outside oh, of yeah. your, your grocery yeah, store. Yeah, they still exist. Right. And and they only had like 20 movies in them. And I remember hearing that the model was, well, Blockbuster has a decent amount of square footage and 90% of their rentals are the top 20 movies anyway. So they're wasting yeah. a lot of a lot of money on all the, 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 the lesser Antonio Banderas movies that people claim to want to have. You know, the same thing with when everybody had the Netflix queue and everybody had 100 Italian movies on it that they never actually got around to watching. Yeah. Yeah. Aspirational consumption. Uh, <laughs> and and I think this is actually really interesting that you would think that uh, when a few people control creative decisions uh, that we're going to get, uh, you know, the same thing over and over again, they're never going to promote people that are interesting. But there, there's some uh, there's a classic sociology study where um, they have people. I mean, this is like kind of old Internet, like you click into kind of a room and you see like songs that you can listen to. And all they do is vary the amount of times that they tell you that these have been downloaded in the past. Uh, and then people listen to the songs and they, and they rate them and they find that there's a huge effect of how me, of how popular you think the song is. Now, so that like, I mean, you can hear the songs, the songs don't change. And you might think that like, well, I just like what I like. Uh, but the fact that other people are out there liking it changes how much you like it too. And it turns out that might be a more powerful homogenizing effect than one person getting you uh, to listen to something. Um, uh, and so now it might be that we have this kind of dictatorship of the popular um, where, where like unpopular things can't be forced on you anymore um, because everything comes from the masses of people promoting something to a, a viral status. Yeah, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. That's that's yeah. fast, that's fascinating, and I think that is pretty pretty compelling. Now, you put up this might be a little <clears throat> difficult to to uh, wedge into this conversation. You put up another post yesterday or the day before oligopoly everywhere where now you're taking a very very big swing now this feels like i'm reading the first draft yeah of, i'm reading the first draft of your book now where it's <laughs> hold on it's not just every single medium of popular culture culture it's it's everything the super yeah. ri the rich aren't getting richer but the super rich are getting super richer the biggest businesses are becoming even bigger um the one specific that you uh, pointed out that I found pretty compelling is that the um, for a while there in the early days of the internet, one day it was Friendster, one, one day it was MySpace, and now the, the top 10 have been the top 10 for some time, and now I know plenty of people who are, who, who um, you know, pine wistfully for a successor to Instagram, which doesn't seem to be on the way. It's just... It's just TikTok. TikTok's the only thing that seems like, I don't know if it's a top 10 app, I'm assuming it is, but yeah, we've just got, we're just going to be Googling from here on out. That's what we're, <laughs> that's, that's how we're getting our information. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember growing up in that period of the internet where like, you know, it was like, it's like kind of hard to use and, uh, and there was something compelling about it. I mean, yes. I made actual friends on the internet uh, when I was like 12, in part because we, we had all kind of found our way into this like little patch of woods that like, it's hard for other people to get here. We're on a message board about Yu-Gi-Oh, right? Like, uh, and because of that, we're kind of like, we're kind of left alone. Like these posts are technically public, but nobody's going to see them other than each other. Yeah. Uh, and like, that was a community. And like when everything gets paved, now you, you don't have the little patch of woods where you can hide anymore. Uh, and so it's really convenient. You can get anywhere you want to very quickly, but like, you're not going to have a community anymore. Uh, now everybody lives next to a highway. Yeah. Yeah, I think that feels that feels about right too. So, what does that what does that mean? Is is that a bad thing? No, it's not all bad, right? Like the reason Google is the top website and has been for the past 10 years is like it's a really useful way of using the internet. I remember the uh the days of the internet where like you might have to go to the second page of Google to actually find what you're looking for. Yeah. And now like it's always in the top 3. Uh like that that tool is rocks it's amazing yeah. uh and so like that's good um what's the downside well like google now controls all advertising on on the internet like maybe that's bad uh or you know google also controls well that algorithm is going to decide how you find the things that you find maybe that's bad to have in one person's uh or under one company's control even though again it's like it's not even one person's control it's like one entity's control and it it's that's almost worse because like when it's one person i think we are appropriately skeptical 
We're like, I don't want big Mr. Google determining all my uh, actions on the internet and how like the internet works for me. But when it's like this amorphous thing that like, I don't know how many people work at Google and like, I'm not even that aware of their CEO. Like these are all made by, by committee. Suddenly it seems like, oh, I don't know. It seems like kind of fine. Uh, and I think the resistance to, uh, to that is what we're kind of missing that I think just like we should be skeptical when one person is running everything, it doesn't actually matter if it's instead of one king, it's a few committees. Um, I think it deserves the same kind of healthy skepticism toward power um, that we have when it's just one person. Right, but you make the case that for whatever reason, we don't have the experience that's taught us that we ought to look at <clears throat> oligarchy as skeptically as we look at, at monarchy or we're not evolved to look at it that way. <clears throat> right. Yeah. It feels wrong sometimes to just get another thing from Amazon Prime. It never felt quite that wrong when I was choosing between Target or Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something about this illusion of choice uh, yeah. that makes it feel like, well, you know, so long as we have some competition. Uh, and I think it's easy to maintain an illusion of competition uh, when there's only a few players. Um, and like these companies are are run by people who are all friends with each other, right? Like, they're not really competing in the in the way that we actually want them to be competing. Well, yeah, that's the nature of oligarchy is that uh, when push comes to shove, the oligarchs are going to band together to keep out the commoners. Yeah, and then yeah. once they've refortified it, then they can go back to war with one another. I mean, this is this is just yeah. this is just Game of Thrones one hundred and one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then finally, uh, you've already touched on your aversion to the news. I want to. Um, talk about your post reading the news is the new smoking you about two three years ago say you successfully gave up you've put reading news in a box it's got a role in in its life that you enjoy and you 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 control the news the news doesn't control you is that about right yeah i'd like to think that yeah yeah i've i've, I've pulled that off for two three weeks at a time so i know it can be done Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. what do you do when you're like in line at the bank? <laughs> uh, so one thing that I do, uh, there, there's so many interesting things to read on the internet, for instance, like blogs called experimental history that yeah. you can put on your phone right. and read. So I use an app called pocket that whenever I find something interesting, Pocket, yeah, Pocket's the greatest app ever invented. Dude, Pocket uh, is Pocket comes with whenever I buy a stupid, crappy uh, PC laptop because I can't figure out how to edit audio on the Mac I'm talking to you on right now. I always have to buy a three hundred dollar uh, laptop. Microsoft wants me to get into Pocket, <clears throat> Pocket, and I thought just when I thought Microsoft had nothing left to offer me in the world, like half the guests I have on this show are people I find through Pocket. It's great. <laughs> So see, it's it's not all bad. Yeah, uh, and, and you, Microsoft you, you all, can still do useful stuff. You advocate for the browser. Yeah, uh, yeah, the browser is great because um, uh, it's just it's curated stories that yeah. like I think stories are great. It's the horse race coverage of the news that I actually think is, is damaging. But of course, I want to hear stories about like uh, like how did the Silk Road come down, like the fall of the Dread Pirate Roberts. I want to hear that. I want to hear a first-hand account from someone living through the uh, the war in Ukraine. I want to hear that too. Just what I don't want to hear is today the Russian army marched another two feet. Uh, uh, like th those things, I think make you anxious without actually informing you of anything. You color coded the covers of the New York Times for a couple of weeks. Please tell me, not with physical copies. <laughs> uh, no, this this is all in PowerPoint. <laughs> okay, thank goodness. Yeah, because you did mention yeah. you have a fiance. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that makes women look for the exit, I believe. And when you did so, not surprisingly, <laughs> what you found is that there's a lot more bad news than good news on the cover of the New York Times. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. And and I was even I even tried to be generous that like sto like political stories. One side could say that this is people being good, and one side could say that this is people being bad. So I kept those gray. It's truly stories about like rape, murder, genocide, embezzlement, uh, all that stuff. Uh, and that alone is still a majority of the things that you'll find, even just on the front page uh, of the New York Times. Right. And there's, you know, again, there's the cynical reason I'm, I, I loved writing the New York City subway and reading the New York Post and the Daily News, knowing I was getting nothing useful out of it. There is, you know, we just we we, we there's the bystander effect, you know, that that we all want to look at the car crash. 
even for a more highfalutin publication like what the New York Times still claims to be, it, it just feels more important that I, I need to know about an earthquake more than I need to know about a thousand orphans were served a hot lunch today. It just, it just, it just yeah. does. But I think it begs the larger question. And as somebody who has been abstaining largely from the news for a couple of years, maybe you're in a slightly better position to 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 offer an answer to this question. Do I really need to be well-informed? I I think I am pretty well-informed, and there's times where I feel pretty smart because I can talk to people and I feel like I know what they're talking about. But I know who I'm going to vote for in two or three years, and, uh, and, and, and even if I don't, I have like plenty of time to become informed on who I ought to vote for. And... I live in California, so it actually doesn't even matter who <laughs> I vote for. Yeah. Practically speaking, my knowledge of the news would inform who I vote. I mean, I actually should know something about local California politics. I could care less. I've only been here for 15 years. Give me a minute, you know? Like, the only <laughs> stuff I take an interest in is is national politics. And it, there's, I, I, I could not possibly begin to, I mean, I like educating my kids a little bit, but a little would go a long way in that regard. There's a lot of shit I leave out. I leave out when I tell them what's going on too. In your, I mean, just point blank. Do we need to know what's going on in the world? Yeah. I know it sounds a little crazy, but I think the answer is by and large, like not really right. some sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I found that even not actively reading the news, so I don't have like a daily news practice, on Saturdays I like check it briefly, um, even just from that. And in fact, even if I cut that out, I would still actually know most of the big things going on. I know when a school shooting happens, I know when Roe v. Wade gets re repealed, because you can't not know. I think people might assume that like you got that because you read it. You probably mainly first heard it from other people. Um, and so, like, what am I actually going to do with that knowledge? Uh, there was another school shooting. It's really sad. I would definitely vote for there to be no more of those. I don't think that people should have guns, but I don't get to make that call. Uh, I get to make the closest thing to that call, uh, you know, every year when I can vote in an election. And when an election time comes around, I do some research and, you know, I vote based on that. I actually think that research that you do uh, in a dedicated way before an election is better than like passively thinking that you're really learning by covering, like, by like uh, just taking in whatever the news gives you. And then there's so much to understand about the world that the news is never going to tell you. Um, uh, like what causes headaches or like, is your deodorant going to give you cancer? Like these things, sometimes the news might tell you something about this, but you actually have to use some sustained attention to understand it better. Um, and then I think like, uh, and so like the idea of being informed, meaning that you read the news, I think is like a huge PR victory for the news. Like you should definitely be informed, uh, but that means you should read widely. You should read novels, you should read nonfiction, you should we read weird blogs, you should, and then you should spend some of that time, I think, like, living a good life and spending time with, with family and like not uh, worrying about like, this world going to hell that you can't actually do anything about when you can, in fact, do things about uh, the people around you. And that is mainly what I've tried to do with the time that I save not reading and worrying about the news, which made me mad and anxious all the time. I try to think like, okay, can I actually do more good in the, the parts of my life where I matter a lot. So like I teach a negotiation class uh, at Columbia Business School. Like when we're in that room together, like a lot depends on me. And if I can do a better job educating those students, like I can make a bigger difference in their, in their life. Uh, the difference that I will make uh, in terms of Roe v. Wade is so vanishingly small in comparison uh, that like, what am I really getting out of like stress reading more articles about it? So that's where I'm at. That's really interesting because I find myself purely hypothetically pondering living in a city in a state that I like in a country that I really can't get on board with. Um, and I've read a little bit about the reality for the last 10, you know, 20 years of of living in, in Moscow, which is overwhelming. People go, oh, there's all these protests in Russia against the Ukrainian war. It's like, yeah, there's lots of protests in New York City when we go invade Iraq, too. What difference did it make? So the reality of living in, and this this is ultimately the stumbling block. If I love my family and my neighbors and my community and where I live, and I know that there's things I cannot getting on board with being done with a small portion of my tax money, 2,500 miles from here, why do I, why would that be a reason for me to consider, you know, taking my ball and, and going elsewhere? And I think it's largely 
I sometimes think my ability to remain in this country might ultimately depend on my ability to say, yeah, that stuff, a lot of it sucks, but a lot of stuff has always sucked. It'll probably be fine anyway. And even if not, there isn't a thing that I can, that I can do about it. And, and, and it seems like you've, you've actually managed to get yourself there. Yeah. And, uh, and I know to a lot of people that can feel like, you know, you're abdicating your responsibility. You're, you're putting your head in the sand. Yeah. And, and I think it, instead of, uh, it's not just about what you avoid. It's about what you draw yourself closer to with the time and energy that you spend. So I think, yeah, th there's a lot of problems in the world and we should work on fixing them. And I think each person should figure out like, what can you do? What are the problems that matter to you? And what are the skills that you can actually bring to bear on that? And then like commit yourself to doing that, uh, that if everybody actually did that, I think the world would get a lot better very quickly rather than everybody being like, well, my part in the, the grand revolution is I'm going to read about it and I'm going to feel really bad and I'm going to be mad at people. Uh, I'd much rather see like, okay, if you really cared uh, and you took it seriously, what would you do? Um, and for me, that has to do with, with I want to be a better teacher. I want to be a better writer. Uh, I want to do a better job communicating scientific ideas that I think are important to people who I think would benefit from hearing about them. Um, and then I want to be, uh, I want to fulfill the obligations better that are placed on me in, in my, in my life. Like I'm a partner, uh, I, I'm an uncle, I'm a son, I'm a brother. Like I want to get better at those things. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then hope that if each person did that individually, then we wouldn't have, uh, you know, the place 2,500 miles away, uh, where all the bad things happen. Um, and maybe that's naive, but I don't know that feels right in my heart. So that's for me what I'm going to do. You know, I expected to be interested in what you had to say, Adam. I didn't expect it to be inspired. <laughs> I like to give the old one-two punch. Hit it with some data and then with some heart. <laughs> well, this is great. So I'm a, I'm actually a little bit confused. Let me ask you a dumb question. I was you you I've I've spent a tiny little bit amount of time on Substack. People subscribe to writers there, and then they get their their blog feed. I thought everybody should I be paying for your Substack, basically. Yeah, actually, just in this conversation, you now owe me like four thousand dollars. Oh my but we goodness! We can take care of that. Afterwards. You've really no. got to be so, clear about that up front with the next year. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, a lot of people after a while uh, like charge for content yeah. on Substack. Um, I, I'm probably going to do that at some point, right? But mainly right now, I do this because like I just really like it, and and I feel like um, you know, there's that moment in uh, I think it's the first Indiana Jones movie where there's like that scepter and you like stick it into the tomb and like the light comes through like the, the like the stone on top of it and like illuminates them. Like when I'm writing in the mode that I write for the blog, I feel like I am in alignment with the universe in that way that like, it feels really good. And like, I really like these ideas and I like, like spending a lot of time making the sentences right and making the graphs right uh, and making the ideas good. And, um, and I just, I hope that for anybody that like they find that thing that when you're doing it, you're like in some I'm in 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 line with the universe in some cosmic sense. So that's really why I do it. Eventually, yeah, I'd like to be able to support myself doing it. Yeah. Um and uh and yeah, so uh, I'll hopefully do that by getting a bunch of strangers on the internet to give me four dollars uh, a month, which I think is actually a beautiful way of doing things. It's um, kind of my job now. So yeah, I, I'm 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 on exactly I'm, I'm on board with that. Well, so mm -hmm. the point being, I encourage people to check out your stuff and let them know it's not behind a paywall. So it's just as simple as clicking over whatever dumb news site you've already doom scrolled five times today. Don't do it a sixth time. Instead, go to experimentalhistory.substack.com. Or they can just search for you. As you mentioned, Google is fairly intuitive at this point. It'll probably lead them to your stuff. It's Adam Mastriani, but careful there is an O in there. Uh, thank you very much for thank your time. You. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been great. <laughs>